You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. Just, I think a lot about like any given moment, any meeting, any situation, what is the system right now that I'm, I'm in and where is my position in the system? That's the question. And then what is, what's needed for me? What, what can I bring uh, that will be helpful, that will move it forward? And sometimes that comes from my personal experience of, of fear, like you just said, witnessing that, being authentic about that, um, changing, creating an aha moment maybe for someone through my story. But then other times it's, um, it's, it's turning the heat up on people that look like me from an accountability perspective. We say like, we, I, you need to do more. And this is what more looks like. And I'm going to help, you know, provide that and, and lay it out for you. And then you have a choice. Do you want to do more? That was Jennifer Brown, an award-winning entrepreneur, author, and diversity and inclusion expert who is deeply passionate about building more inclusive workplaces where more of us can feel welcomed, valued, respected, and heard. We're talking during the launch of the second edition of her book, How to Be an Inclusive Leader. As someone who's been doing DEI consulting for 20 years, she's been in a place to experience the changing contours of the conversation. Our conversation isn't quite an entry-level conversation, but it will be helpful for folks who have been integrating diversity and inclusion practices into their teams and leadership. If you're new to the DEI conversation, her book is a great short read, and I highly recommend picking it up. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining me today on the podcast. I've been excited about this conversation for a while. Obviously, we've been in other conversations. Um, so mm. congrats on putting out the second edition of this book. And thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Charlie. I'm so happy to be here. All right. So I one of the things I find really interesting about your story is um, when we look at where we are in the DEI or DEI or whatever version of 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 those acronyms that that we're speaking to today, like it's been really trending over the last I don't know six to seven years, really getting hot mm-hmm. after you know after 2018 2019. But you've been in this for a minute, um, mm-hmm. so sort of tell us how you got into it and how the landscape has shifted in the period of time that you've been doing this work. Oh my goodness. Uh, well, I've been in for probably two decades, I think. And uh, I was a learning and development professional. And previous to that, I was an opera singer. Um, and I had to quit singing because I had some vocal trouble. So I I went back to school and studied organizational change and learning and development and just really fell in love with the discipline and um, was corporate person and then uh, started my own company. Uh, so I, but in those early days, I was, while I was doing learning development, I was also a volunteer for the whole kind of LGBTQ, wasn't, there was no Q at the time, (laughs) LGBT workplace equality movement. And as such, my friends and I were all the kind of firsts 
at these really big companies, um, encouraging these companies to sell more respective, respectfully to the community, to recognize the buying power of the community and others that were that was increasing and still is, um, and to introduce more non non discrimination language into their corporate statements. Uh, and also to recognize domestic partnerships because at the time that was the thing. <laughs> this shows you how long ago it was. And um, and I really cut my teeth, I think, on those early days. And I, I, I fell deeply in love and committed to finding my voice, right? To becoming the teacher that utilized not just the skill set I might have studied, but also my lived experience as part of my source material, if you will, will, and telling my story. And over the course of these many years, coming more and more out too, but the early days were definitely not out. I mean, it was, it was opera singing and music theater and the nineties and the aughts. And, uh, you know, I, I knew, I really suspected, and I knew that it would be um, detrimental to my career. So, um, so it's just something that I will never forget. It's something I still carry with me. And these days I feel I can, I carry both this identity that has been a source of, of challenge, but, but oh, the overcoming of it, the learning from it, the, the way that it's transformed my own leadership is profound um, and given me a voice, right. And given me a reason to get up every day. Um, but also the, the identities of, of privilege I carry, my socioeconomic background, um, the color of my skin joined with my LGBTQ identity is a really interesting combination. And, 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 and sort of speaking about all those things as a teacher now um, is nothing that I was even aware of, I would say, in, in most of those years. And that's really been a recent, recent phenomenon for me to, to say, okay, you know, I might have identified this way for all those years and sort of fighting against, right? And raising up from like bottom-up change. And then now recognizing I have so much in common as well with those who are, I think, overrepresented in the leadership of institutions. And that I can speak to those folks and somehow kind of be reach and and be heard in a certain way where I can be a change agent there. So it, it's, it continues to evolve. You know, I, I think we find our place and change. And, you know, I think that our, our own uh, tools, our toolkit, our self-awareness, we're always deepening that and always finding like, where's the heat here? Like where, where's the need and where can I be most resonant as a messenger? Well, and I love that, that journey there, because, you know, you mentioned in the green room, like, let's say something provocative today. And I was like, well, the whole conversation, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> and and there's I at this expectation at this my my perception is in this wave of DEI, you don't look like who we expect to be teaching about mm -hmm. DEI, right? Um mm -hmm. white passing, um, have a lot of the um appearance of what's you know, of what we want hetero white women to look like, you know, those sort of things, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um and not hetero, just white women. So anyways, I'm gonna get myself yeah. in all sorts of trouble <laughs> okay, today. I get what you mean. Right. Um, so Jennifer is <laughs> going to have grace with me. Listeners, please do the same. Um, and, <laughs> Always. And, and so, um, so there's just been this interesting in my experience um, as a black man in this world, like the, we've come either back around because we've had to, or because of different mm -hmm. reasons, we've come back to where race has taken a much more center point in DEI. Mm -hmm. I think it's 
after sort of the colorblind era where we where we thought the way to <laughs> the way to like be inclusive is just to not not talk about race and to quote not mm-hmm. see color right or like there's just been that going on so um i want you commented on it i wasn't necessarily going to start with that but how is that dichotomy between your lived experience and your appearance and what people are expecting for DEI um, specialists or thought leaders to be really impacting your work these days? Yeah, it's, it's such a good question. Something I think about a lot, like how do I, how do I utilize my platform for the work? Um, and how do I use myself as a messenger that's unique and might have a certain angle that's needed in the equation, but it's certainly not the whole, the whole thing. (laughs) Um, you know, I, I think that we can't create change without involving people that look like me, I think for lasting change, for sustainable Mm -hmm. change, uh, particularly when, um, power is held so disproportionately Mm -hmm. in organizations and where representation is so woefully, you know, unsatisfactory to put a, you know, a mild word on it. Um, it's unacceptable. Um, Mm -hmm. the people that look like me advocating for the things that I advocate for, I hope role models, what that sounds like, what that looks like in practice, because I think we need to help people see what that looks like so they can mimic it, so they can echo it so that they can try it on and see like, well, could I speak that way? Is there a story that I have to tell about an invisible diversity dimension like Jennifer does? Or, you know, um, is there a way, even I, as a a person of many privileges, is there a way I could be contributing to this? And I'm, I'm just trying to make that really clear because without that contribution, we, we, and I'll say we now as perhaps those who are underrepresented are going to be fighting harder and utilizing more of our energy and burning ourselves out, carrying all the water for change as we have, as we've been asked to, you know, standing up and being the only and educating and doing the emotional labor and all that stuff. But, but we need to equally invest in our current and future allies and accomplices so that it's more of a relay race of change, right? It's the passing of the baton so that I can get a rest so that you, Charlie, could get a rest um, and you can pet your, you can pass that to me and I'm ready to run with it, you know, and I'm, I know what to do with it because I've done my homework and I've studied and I'm, and I want to be more inclusive. Um, I want to make a difference in the world. I want to leave it better than I found it. So, um, I, I just think that, um, it's, I think people are mystified and bewildered or feeling a sense of, I don't know how this is true, but I think it's true, whether we agree with it or not. That, that I'm not somehow included in this. This is not my problem to solve. This is not my, you know, axe to, axe to grind, you know, shoulder, something to shoulder, something to, that actually even relates to me. And that's never true. You know, everybody has an experience of diversity and exclusion, even if it's not direct, it's someone we love, it's someone in our families, it's someone in our team, in our community. Um, we each have so much to contribute and perhaps even, those who have not been contributing and being involved have have that missing piece because I am unsatisfied with the pace of change. I don't know about you, yep. but I was like literally sold a bill of goods on like, well, the business case will 
will improve this. And so I said, okay, you know, I will lead with the business case. (laughs) And over the years, it's like business case, business case, business case, right? All the statistics, all the research. And we still find ourselves like completely not where we should be. So I have to ask the question, you know, what, what is going on? Like, what are we missing here in the way that we're thinking about, you know, who's doing what and how and why? And is that, are we being specific enough? Are we being inclusive enough? Are we inviting people in? Are we equipping them with an understanding of where they fit? Are we, are we clear around here's what you can contribute? And I think a lot of my contributions these days can come from the privileged identities that I carry. And that's that big unlock that I have discovered like probably within the last four or five years that I can then give to leaders and say, hey, I see you as an insider. You're an insider because of identity, skin color, gender identity, where you live, the families that you spend social time with, whatever it is. Um, Therefore, you have so much that others could benefit from. And if you sort of joined that um, capital with others' journeys and um, rebalance, therefore, the workplace, which is not, which is not a healthy place. Um, So, so if we can activate that, then I think we may make better progress. We may go further together as the proverb says, but we've got to kind of probably back up to go forward. And that's why at the book, I want to kind of meet people where they're at and say, hey, you're a part of this. And I'm not letting you off the hook, just like I'm not letting myself off the hook. Yeah. Well, I was working with an organization who has a DEI initiative. And when they got to their public messaging, I was just noting like how much of it was centered around the business case. Mm. Um, and I was like, look, y'all, here's the thing. <laughs> I think I'm well, I think I might need to be out on this one because yeah. Yeah. the business case doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it does is give people the opportunity to show well, like maybe we're doing all right on the business side of things, or maybe that, you know, that sort of that promise of innovation and sort of things like that. Maybe we're good on some of those dimensions. So we don't mm-hmm. need to do that, right? And so Ooh, the very yeah. thing the very thing that we're using to make the business case for inclusion can be used to show why why the work is done. Right. Um, Mm. And so, but they hadn't considered that, but it's like, you know, I think the only way we make the change that we need, that we want to make is to make the justice case, right. Mm. The moral case for this. Yeah. I love that we're circling back to that um, after many years. I mean, because I've seen that evolution and Lily Zhang, my friend makes that exact point too. and, And she says she has a new book out too called DEI deconstructed. And she says the business case like by not making the moral case, the business case like turns us into a metric. Like it, right? It, it sort of in its way doesn't see us in all of our uniqueness and capacity and, and innovation and creativity and all of our identities. Um, and so in a way it, it sort of invalidates, I think the very fuel that we're looking to unleash when we talk about you know, when we say bringing our, our full selves to work, it's so easy to say, but it's so hard in practice and it's not, companies don't mean it. They say it and they use it conveniently, but they really don't want to do the hard work of saying, well, why is this workplace unhealthy for people? Why does it derail, you know, their sense of belonging? You know, what needs to change? And P.S. the answer is everything needs to change. Everything needs to be rethought. 
there's bias everywhere in every system in every process. I hate to say it, but it was not built by the, a representative sampling of, of humans. And so there were a lot of missed things in the design of it. And it continues to cause harm because it hasn't been revisited and challenged. And if you are an insider in any way, those points where you are an insider, that's when you can push on other insiders, right? That's where the power lies. And you can say like, we need to do this differently. We don't need to wait for somebody to tell us we need to make this change. And, but it takes that courage. And that's why I want to shore up you know, people who might've been on the periphery of this, because I, 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 they have a lot to do that's really, really needed, but they need to lead differently. Need to lead differently. And it's kind of like if you, whether it's Tima Oaken's work on, you know, the characteristics Mm -hmm. of white supremacy in organizations or whether that is, I think where people on the sideline get trapped up is the very cultural norms that are leading to exclusion and marginalizations are the ones that also limit their voice, right? Um, (laughs) Also are the ones where it's like, you know, you have your right to comfort or you have your one, you know, one, Mm -hmm. only one way. There's so many things that are baked into that, that they're Mm -hmm. like, you know, in my experience, like, oh, I don't know how to get involved, which is, it's, it's like when, when it's your own thing and someone says they don't know how to get involved, it's always exasperating. Right. What do you mean you don't know how to get involved? Like you can do X, Y, and Z, but when you flip it, they're like, oh, I don't know how to get involved over there. And it's like, let's think about it. Let's unpack this. But I think it's so much of that underlying culture of there's one right way to do this and there's a right to comfort and, you know, a focus on hierarchy and we wait for the leaders to, you know, we wait for the leaders and the seniors to sort of have a top-down initiative. I'm in change management, broadly speaking. Just as a side note, something like two thirds to seventy five percent of change management efforts fail. Yeah, right. Especially the top down led ones. And so it's like, let's think about this. If we know those are more often than failing, and you're waiting on them to do something that's failing, think about how you're contributing. You're contributing to the system versus being like, hey, I I don't know what to do, or I don't know if I'm saying this right, but I think you've, have you been talked over in that way the whole time, and I just didn't see it or like you just enter the conversation. Like I see something that may have happened and I don't know how to talk about it, but I want to talk about it. I want to like, <laughs> let's figure this out how to fix that. Cause it didn't feel right, you know, or whatever the, whatever the thing yeah, is. Right. You just role modeled the exact language, you know, it, and, and people overcomplicated and they say that it's scary and they, they just avoid it. I can hear it. You know, people say, I, I Jennifer, I, you know, I don't, It's that perfectionism too in that white supremacy checklist is so enormous when it comes to inclusive leadership. Like we don't, we are willing to tolerate like the mistakes towards innovation all day long. We're willing to get it wrong to get it right, you know? And yet when it comes to this topic, it is, it does operate that way. There is experimentation before you develop competence and confidence and as such, it's a winding road and it's one step forward, two steps back. It's, you know, falling off and getting back on and getting feedback that doesn't feel very good. And then reflecting and saying, Ooh, is there truth in there that, that let me take that on and let me not be fragile about it or defensive about it. But, um, I, I do think that supremacy checklist is, is literally something we all need to keep in mind because that is like you say, what has been rewarded. It is what has been socialized. It is baked into our systems. And I feel like sometimes I'm having a very different, almost counterintuitive conversation about 
how we might step outside of that, look objectively at it, say, okay, that might've worked for a period of time, historically for a certain group of leaders, but it honestly has, like you just said, it's been actually toxic for people, even on the inside, even people that identify in the group with allegedly the power. When we look at men and masculinity, as we do with some of the conferences that I'm a part of, the the toxicity that men feel, men of all identities. I don't have to tell you, like, you know, that, that, that tension of being the human you are, but then having this like man box culture that requires and demands conformity and demands lining up and staying in your lane. I mean, that is not good for a whole bunch of humans of all identities. And then the ripple effects of harm, you know, kind of radiate from there, but the harm to men all kinds of men is, is not to be underestimated. And so if we can start there, I I love, I love starting in a different place because I feel like also we've just been like pushing this thing and something's not working. Like we're not where we should be. So where are some other places where we can locate the work and the conversation and maybe start from there and begin to create ripples of change? Because I know masculinity work then ripples out to enable all the stuff we're talking about right around that. It's almost a core issue. I'm starting to really think about it that way. I'm glad you went there because um, at this point, it's it's it it has felt at times, not everywhere, all places. But when we talk about masculinity, we're only talking about toxic max- masculinity, mm. and we can go that way. But you know, are we talking about toxic femininity? Is that a conversation that we can have, right? Um, I want to make sure not to get too overly canceled here, right? Um, but like, there's there's right there, there's healthy masculinity, and what does that look like? Where's space in the conversation for what that looks like, right? Mm. And you'll notice that if you go into that split that space, it lines up with what we're talking about in inclusivity and things like that. There's not necessarily a one-on-one overlap because you know there might be places where. When we talk about full expression, we need that, you know, um, I'm just going to paint a character here. We need that six foot four doughy, like offensive tackle from Nebraska to be able to show up how he feels authentic to show up too, as long as it's not harming other people. Like he needs space Mm -hmm. to have that, Mm -hmm. right? We need that, you know, infantryman that's been doing that and has spent a hard life doing that work to be able to say, you know what, I, I can show up in ways that are, that, that let me express myself as well again. Mm -hmm. But how do we do that in ways where we talk about these um, gaps where there's you expressing yourself and being who you are. And then there's you, you know, sort of doing things maybe unintentionally or unintentionally that are making people uncomfortable and not feeling welcome and and, and belonging. Like if we're really going to talk about belonging, it does need to be for everybody, right? That's right. That's right. And and you could even argue, you're making me think about people who haven't been shown empathy find mm-hmm. maybe it harder to empathize and take on the DEI agenda. So the 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 men that were the boys, that were the bullied or the bullies, right? The the the, the, the lack of empathy that was shown for all kinds of boys, right? Which then turns into the men, which then turns into the, the leadership that sets the tone, you know, that's why that work is so fascinating to, to have an empathy conversation for yourself, (laughs) 
you know, and for others that look like me before I then I feel heard, I feel seen, I feel that it was, was named and it, and I wasn't okay with it, but it wasn't my choice, right? That the culture was so strong. So, so even just that, like, wow, let me dig into my story and the baggage I have here and the harm and let me come out of that and then kind of be awakened and have the capacity and the release of saying, well, if I don't have to be that, who do I choose to be? If I step outside of this, who do I want to be? And and the question so compelling to me, particularly leaders of a certain age and generation is, is what legacy do you want to leave? And as you've led so far, is that enough? Like, is, is that what you want to leave? Or do you, even at a later stage in life where we're still growing, we're still evolving, we're still discovering like untapped capacity in ourselves. I think we have so much potential to continue to evolve. Um, what could I do differently now? You know, maybe I can lead differently. Maybe I can challenge the role I've, I've played or the silence that I've maintained or the way that I haven't spoken up or the way that I haven't told my story and, and been, like you said, that six foot four, you know, that person that sort of is this and that, and I'm this, and I'm almost also that, you know, I also think the storytelling is so powerful to say, here's me, like, here's all, I think of it like a Rubik's cube these days, like, the intersectionality of people, right? The the different squares, the colors, the things on the back of the cube, the things in the front that you see. That's true for every single human walking around. There's always something going on. And um, that is what's so enriching about this work is, is, is there's moments I can build enough psychological safety where somebody trusts me with what's true for them. And, and to be shocked and, and surprised in my own bias, in my own stereotyping of that person. And to be, and to have that check and say, wow, like I just put you in that box and I was wrong. Thank you. And I'm going to carry your story and who you are and all of who you are with me. That's so profound. Um, so I think again, kind of empathy, feeling seen, almost like we, we sit here on the outside of all this and say, feel empathy, like care about this. <laughs> But I think there's like some inner work that has to happen for the folks that we're like, we need so desperately to step up, to be involved, to get into the arena for DEI and for this work. But um, but they're unable to, I think, because there's a lot of stuff getting in the way and you got to kind of clear and reconcile and align some things and heal some things so that you can have the full partnership of someone. Yeah, I think, you know, in the philosophy of science, which is... Listeners know my background here, right? Um, there's a well-worn sort of statement that theory, excuse me, observation is theory-laden, mm. right? Observation is theory-laden. We've now, you know, some, like cognitive psychology and things like that have taken that on. We talk about biases and like how we how we have an idea and we project that onto the world, but we've been talking about that for a long time in philosophy, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think that participants in the conversation realize how many of those theories they have when they're engaging with. So it's like they're mm. having empathy, but they're having empathy with a person that's not in front of them. Mm. Right. Because how do you really get there? And so I, I agree with you. Like one of the things I love being a coach and facilitator and, you know, um, mentor for folks is when I know they've dropped the performance when I know they've dropped the mask and they're not thinking about who they need to be. That's beautiful. They're not, 
they're not thinking about what labels I might be seeing them as. Mm. Um, and I can tell because they talk different. Um, you end up getting much more sibling language, right? Um, and it, it just there's just a relaxing that happens like, oh, and a lot of my clients are women. Mm. And so you can just see a different change in them where they're just sitting back in their chair, smiling, laughing. They're just not performing, right? Mm. Um, and I don't know to what degree we sometimes recognize how much we're performing and those around us are so that we can really see the person in front of us and learn those things. Right. Cause you might, this, this is a real tangent here, but um, I was reading bell hooks. I forget which of her books I was reading. Oh, so good. Uh, yeah. And she was talking about the terror that she had of her father. Mm. Right. And how that framed how she understood masculinity and men. Mm-hmm. And I was reading this on the plane. I remember it. And I paused and I was like, huh. I've never been scared of my dad in that way. Mm. I've never been scared of another sort of man in that way. I I didn't associate it in that sort of way. And so I, there's a way in which I didn't understand part of the conversation that many women were approaching thinking about masculinity. Like I'd never thought what would it be like to be terrified, right, of this person in power? Like, my dad was army sergeant. Like, he was firm, and he was tough, and he could be mean. But I was never, like, it was never a terrorizing figure for me. Oh. Right? And no other men never, ever have, right? Um, mm. Partially because you have to be meaner and tougher than my dad, and that's hard to do. <laughs> right? So it's like, you got you got a high, high bar. So I went through all the Boy Scouts. I went through all of military schools. I went through all of that, never, never associating violence and terror and men at the same time. Wow. Um, <laughs> and I was like, what, how would I approach this whole conversation differently if that's the way that many women experience it? It's like, oh, so I had that sort of epiphany, talked to Angela about it and then realized that she had some, some stuff. I was like, oh, I never really considered that. Uh-huh. Um, but then I was like, but also – How would I approach this conversation differently if my base archetype for masculinity was healthy men? Mm. Right. Um, And I didn't assume that that's that men or masculinity equaled that sort of thing. So it just gives you a different entry point. And it's kind of like, you know, we're recording this after the election, Mm. um, the midterm election. And I have enough clients and colleagues and friends and family members and people I love who are either politicians or who have run for office and who have done all those sort of things. So you see people like, are there politicians and they're doing this and here's what they're thinking. And I'm like, I know enough people across the aisle from different walks of life and none of them think like that. Mm. Right. Um, and many of them, when I talk about what's going on, these are really complex issues that are hard to figure out that don't show up in our, you know, media streams and in our, in our, so like, what would happen if we approached politicians as these are our neighbors and friends and sisters, right? Um, if we assume that they're those types of folks because they're somebody's neighbor sister, right? Yeah. How might we then interpret interpret their interactions, their, their platforms, their policies. Mm. So I know, I know both of those, but I think we roll into seeing other people, those conversations around empathy without understanding what we're bringing into the conversation 
to even start to understand what's going on. Mm. That is so true. It's just so true. Um, yeah, I, I love everything you said. I'm just, just reflecting. <laughs> I, I don't know if I can add to it because it was, it was a beautiful description of, um, what we project on people and how we miss so much about the truth. Um, and that there's a performance going on and there's also the labels we give things to kind of locate each other and ourselves. You know, we look at the LGBTQ plus community and all those letters I just strung together are an incredibly diverse group of people. And yet we've kind of mashed ourselves together for, for, for convenience and, and also to find each other for sure for community. But, um, you know, there's so many, so many differences within and so much bias and stereotyping and harm going on within communities of identity. There's so much diversity within the diversity. There's so much. I remember recognizing how privileged I was in the LGBTQ community and putting those two things together and carrying that and beginning to articulate that. And, and then reckon, like you just said, like walking in a community, but actually not experiencing the same harms. Um, mm-hmm. it's like you just said, like it was a revelation to you to say, I can do this and this other person can't. I, in my early immature days, I sort of lumped us all together. And now I completely don't. I see the intersectionality. I see difference. You know, it's not, we're not in the age of, I don't see color anymore. Although I work with a lot of baby boomer leaders and Gen Xers and bless their hearts. Like this was what we taught. We were taught to say, to think, to believe, to practice. Um, but now, um, the differences are so crucial, crucial and, and to not sweep them under the rug, to talk about them, to name them. And then for people within each community that has been traditionally marginalized to then recognize the positions of privilege they may hold vis-a-vis that identity. We are so many things. And so like, just, I think a lot about like any given moment, any meeting, any situation, what is the system right now that I'm I'm in and where is my position in the system? That's the question. And then what is what's needed from me? What what can I bring uh, that will be helpful, that will move it forward? And sometimes that comes from my personal experience of of fear, like you just said, witnessing that, being authentic about that, um, changing creating an aha moment maybe for someone through my story. But then other times it's, um, it's, it's turning the heat up on people that look like me from an accountability perspective. We say like, we, I, you need to do more. And this is what more looks like. And I'm going to help, you know, provide that and and lay it out for you. And then you have a choice. Do you want to do more? Um, that's, I love bell hooks, like the, you know, the will to change (laughs) the will it's, it, this is the thing I think about a lot, how, Skills can be built, but will has to be awakened. So, yeah. Hmm. And I wonder about that. I'm glad it probably was the will to change that I was reading. Um, <laughs> but um, I think what, what people have reported to me from all walks of life is when it comes to entering the DEI conversation, um, after we go through some deeper conversation, what was revealed is they're having a hard time reconciling their past behavior Mm. with what they know now Mm -hmm. and walking forward with what they know now. Right. Um, And so I'm sure you've done this work much more. There's a reason why I don't do DI work specifically. (laughs) We might talk about that later, but you've done this a lot. (laughs) You've done this a lot. So 
how do you help people in that place where they just look at all and they'll say like, I've done so many dumb things, mm-hmm. right? I've done, I just didn't know. And now how do I, how do I start from where I am? I know now and they yeah. just get stuck. I get stuck. Yeah. Because I feel weighed down by the actions. Um, I don't want to talk about them because I fear I'm going to get canceled, which I, I find discouraging because the only way to where we need to go is through this. It's, you can't go around it. You know, you, we have to say, here's what I got wrong. Here's what I didn't know. Here's what I wish I'd handled differently. Here were gifts that people gave me so that I could increase my self-awareness. I think people can storytell around that. I think they should. I think they absolutely, it's part of our healing. It's part of, it's part of owning our past now, but late leaders will say, Jen, it's too, too risky to do that. I, and I understand that. I mean, I might argue it's risky not to, <laughs> and I might also say, yeah, I'm like, what's being risked here. Yeah. Right? But- I might say, look, you have a lot of power. Like, I think you're relatively protected. Like if you want to talk to me about risk, talk to my trans friend. Like risky of showing up every day in your truth and dealing with the consequences of that. Like that's risk. So, you know, I don't, I don't buy it. (laughs) I try to gently say, I'm sorry, respectfully, you're really not at a lot of risk. You actually are pretty protected in doing this. And this is growth. Um, but I, I would make your journey transparent as much as you can. And, um, because in doing so, not only are you like putting the pieces of your life together and who you are and how you got here, but you're also have an opportunity to say, here's what I want to be. Here's what I want to know. Here's what I'm not okay with. Here's where I am going to be endeavoring to change and grow and what you're going to see in me as I go down this journey, you're going to hear me say this, try this, um, And what you can do also in that moment, in that same breath, is you can say, please let me know how I'm doing. In that same breath, welcome that feedback, open that door. And I wouldn't even say like, oh, you know, my door is open. That's too passive. (laughs) Because people, I'm like, people aren't going to tell you the truth. You know that. Like, emperor has no clothes. Like, we are, as leaders, we are always isolated. The more senior we are, the more removed we are. And we're removed in many ways. We, we didn't have the lived experience. We're of a different generation. Nobody wants to tell us the truth. We're in a very, I think, a very, a place of jeopardy, honestly. When What we don't know can really hurt us and our ability to lead, to succeed, to get the most from ourselves, from others. So we can't afford not to know. But we have to humble ourselves and truly seek, not just say my door is open, but seek this information. Assume we are not going to know and talk about the fact that we're not going to know. And believe me, when I talk like this, this is hard for me. This is actually my vision for myself <laughs> too. Um, but for me to talk about like, here's what, you know, what it sounds like, is this scaring you? Is it terrifying? You don't know how it's going to turn out. Back to your white supremacy checklist, the the predictability rate of that check in that checklist. That's what I see. I don't know if it's a, na- a word in there, but I think that It is like, I want guarantees, Jennifer. Like, I want to know that I want to know when I'm going to be done and when do I get the gold star and when have I finished the task and when can I check it off my list? And how, you know, it's, it's all of this baggage on this very, I think the word, like it's a delicate process to evolve and, and there are twists and turns and forwards and backwards and uncertainties and ambiguity and, and you got to tolerate and sit with those super uncomfortable feelings, like you just said, of 
who was I before? But I, but I, but I want to welcome the person that was imperfect before, because that was all of us. That's not, that's not uncommon. That's, that's all of our stories. There were, there were moments I am ashamed of what I didn't know, what I didn't say, how I looked at the world, who raised me, what I was not exposed to. And, but what matters is what I'm doing with all of that today. And I think we need to give people chances, you know, to reconcile, to, um, to take accountability, to share the imperfections and the regrets and the mistakes, but we have to make space for that. And we're in such an intense, like angry, polarizing time, Charlie, I don't know. I wish for grace for each other, but I also do know that it can get very messy, very fast. Um, when people don't have the skill to navigate their way through it. And, um, you know, I, the last thing I want to do is throw people into the deep end and say, good luck, good luck with inclusive leadership, because it is a minefield and you're going to get blown up <laughs> like over and over and over again. Like, I, I don't want that to be true because I actually don't think humans learn and improve from being shamed. I just don't believe that that's possible, but but the shaming is is a technique, unfortunately, that is very is commonly used, and it's almost like we have this blunt instrument, right, of shaming and calling out. But there are so many other ways to invite change that I think we need to kind of broaden our palette, so to speak. Do you agree? <laughs> I agree, and it's one of those things where I'm going to pull back what you said. Like you said, I don't think humans learn by shaming. Mm. I I think. We can get behavior change through shaming, mm. right? People will play this part and they'll do the script yeah. and they'll do, go through the motions, but you didn't say that. You said learn, mm -hmm. right? Or evolve. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I agree. We don't learn and evolve through shame. We learn what not to do. We learn the, the, lay, the lay of the game, but we don't have an entry point into whatever that is, right? Okay. Um until we just get to the point to where like we can avoid the shame pain. Right. And it's like, okay, that's what I learned, but that's not really what we're trying to do here. Right. Um, and so um, mm. I wonder about that because again, when a lot of my clients come to me again, I don't do this work directly, but um, when I see these issues popping up, I'm like, you know, here's the thing. I'm not going to take the tension away. Um, I'm not going like I'm not going to give some answer to where like you are then able to understand LGBTQ people. That's not how this works, right? Each person is a distinct person, mm -hmm. right? And you're going to have to sit with the tension that each person you see may need different things, mm -hmm. right? They may have different experiences, and so that means every new person in every situation and every team configuration, you might be back with this question. Of like, how do we increase belonging and inclusion mm -hmm. for everyone with, with where we are? And what worked today may not work tomorrow. Well, um, um, and so if you're looking for one answer, I can't give that. But let's talk about why you want that answer. Mm -hmm. Right? Let's talk about what's underneath that. Right? Because do we really want other people to end up with a simple answer for who we are mm -hmm. that then... Like we're forever in that box of who we are. Like we don't want that for ourselves. So why do we want that for other people in other situations? Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's just part of this culture that we've come from where like, 
you know, whether it's, you know, Aristotelian logic or whether it's just the foundations where it's like, it's either the right way or the wrong way. Mm. And I'm like, there are so many perspectives. And by the time you get so contextual and conditional, you'll see that actually there, there might've been one right way for this person in that time, in that configuration, mm-hmm. but that, that river, you will never step into that river again. Oh, it's so beautiful. You know, when I learned that point so much around 2020 and 2021, but particularly that summer, the whole question is like checking in with your black friend, you know, um, <laughs> it reminds me of, the, the, the key learning for me was, was no one is experiencing this moment in the same way. So at the same time as you can, you can sort of estimate a community, you can understand the sort of contours of an experience and learn that and study that. And know I always say like, know the top five microaggressions like that people hear, <laughs> you should know that because there's a lot in that. There's a lot of wisdom there. And then you kind of need to throw the book away and encounter this person across from you. And when every time I would ask you, what is the right answer to that? Everybody would answer it differently. And it depends on the day. I may be feeling extremely depleted today. And I don't, I don't want to solve, you, you know, your, for your learning, right? I don't want to support you in your fear and uncertainty. But then there are other days, you know, I, 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 I have a ton of energy, you know, and I feel like I'm resourced. Um, and there's extroverts, there's introverts, there's all kinds of thought and personality differences and diversities within each of our identity groups too. So each of us has these different roles, different thresholds, different, um, sort of sustainability aspects, I guess, to our battery. And, um, and that exists across difference, across all of these identities that we sort of label and put into buckets, you know, that you and I might hail from extremely different identities, but we may share, you know, I don't know, a Myers-Briggs type or something, or you might be a woo on the strengths finder, which you probably are. So, you know, there are some, there are some things that transcend, um, these visible differences too, that keep us apart. And I think those are really neat to explore too. Um, and this is why in my work with affinity groups and ERGs, I'm always looking for not just the vertical identities that we typically think of for diversity dimensions, like race, gender, um, you know, at veteran status, disability. But I think about what crosses all of us, like mental health, right? Or like our experience of um, gender. You know, gender is is not just relevant to LGBT people and women. Everybody's having a gender experience. Um, so, or mm-hmm. parenting or, you know, um, neurodiversity. So, or ability and disability, you know, sort of go those horizontal threads. So I'm always kind of thinking about the diversity within the diversity, the intersectionality and the things that also pull us together. Um, And like you say, allowing for all that beautiful individuality to exist. Um, And so it's, it is this tension. You're right. Because somebody wants the answer. They want, well, what do all X people think? What do they want? They um, and, and it's sort of like, well, thank you for being interested, but the answer I'm going to give you is extremely complicated and it's beautiful in its complexity. Um, but sometimes you kind of, as a teacher, you always want to simplify. You always want to give people an entry point that they can, they can enter in, you know, something they can hold on to. So I don't know how, how you, uh, is, if that's what you mean by tension. <laughs> yeah, it it is because that's, you know, they want that answer. And sometimes I'm like... I don't know. I ask them. 
mm-hmm. right? They know that, like, they might know themselves better than I do. Well, yes. Right? Um, <laughs> and so, I mean, and I say that, I mean, it's it's tongue in cheek, but we have to realize that a lot of times when we live in these systems, we part of the oppression of the system is we lose access to ourselves as well. Oh. Right. And so we may not know what we want. We may not be able to navigate that because of the system, or we may not feel that we can speak up to it. Right. And so that, that's a real thing that happens as well. Like, Mm. um, and so that's where I say like, they might know, but they might not. Right. Yeah. 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 One of my favorite things, Charlie is like the surprise readers of my book are going through their own journey of, realizing that they are not living their truth fully um, and sort of emerging um, and that self-awareness and the permission that people still need to mine all of that they may have been suppressing, that they don't know themselves, like you said, that I don't know I'm having the experience that this whole community of people is having and by the way, is researched and written about. Like people don't know that stuff. I mean, I look at it all day long and I and I, and I know it, but, um, but it's so cool to see people kind of wake up to, wow, like I'm not making that up. I did have that experience. I'm not alone. There's a community I can bring this to that I can feel seen and heard in, which is so powerful and so important. And then from there, I can begin the process of deciding with my eyes open, you know, what do I want to bring to the world? Um, but yeah, I, I, that's, it's the assumption that we know ourselves um, and that people always have the answer and then they're going to give you something clean. <laughs> no, no such thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I half the time don't know what I want. So I'm like, I'm with you. <laughs> it, it's just one of those things. And so it's like, okay, well, how do we unpack that? And that might be where, um, and you, you mentioned something about, us being dynamic creatures and being up for the conversation some days and not Mm -hmm. right. And then other days I'm like, and that's why, you know, we, when we make that space there about this range of conversations, right. Then I think we also open up that when we're not in these harder conversations, someone can be like, you know what? I'm just depleted today. And I don't know that I can have this strategy conversation today. Can we like maybe reschedule that or think about that differently? Or like, is there a different way to go? Because it lets us learn that like, wait a second, we are dynamic creatures that maybe have different bandwidths to engage in different ways. Mm -hmm. And that's an open conversation that we can have because obviously when it's us and we're at our capacity, our emotional, social, cognitive capacity, many people would really appreciate, right? It'd be like, is there a way that we can not do that today? Right now, we have to be careful here mm. because conversations around, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion are really easy to punt because they're hard to do in the moment to keep punting. Like, ooh, I'm kind of, mm, I'm not really feeling it today, especially, unfortunately, if you're the people that have the privilege, right, to, to opt out of the conversation, mm-hmm. right? We're like, oh, it's been a hard day. Can we talk <laughs> about this whole, like, LGBTQI inclusion thing, like, next week? Can we reschedule that? <laughs> right. So it's it tricky, tricky, right? It's super, super it, it tricky. It doesn't really apply equally across the board, I think, is what you're saying. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't apply equally because, you know, it could be that I just had a argument with my brother and I'm emotionally overloaded from that argument with my brother. 
and I can't process this other conversation to where I might need to be shepherding you through different people's lived experiences, right? right? And do that in a way where I have the patience and the the um, the ability to have that be a. Um, I'm not trying to say we should always have like the soft DEI conversation. You know what I'm talking about. You, actually, I'll let you unpack that, mm-hmm. right? But we also know that the really hard, spiky ones <laughs> also don't make it um, go in there. So you do this work every day. So <laughs> you know what I mean by the soft and the spiky ones. So <laughs> oh, unpack that for the us. Spicy if you ones will. too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh lordy. Yeah. It's so uh, what you're speaking about. Uh, it's like we're our own barometer and we have to put our oxygen mask on first, as we say, and um, pick our moments. But we need to be in systems that that allow for that, like to make that ask. And the stigma, though, this is mental health, right? This is for our own mental health and advocating for ourselves and raising our hand and saying, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not up for this today. Um, I guess when you're on the side of, of doing a lot of the labor for the organization, that's where I think this kind of applies differently, depending on who you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you are on that side and you're being asked to educate, um, there's gotta be an acknowledgement that historically you've carried the water. Like it, historically we've overburdened folks with showing up or leading something or being the spokesperson or educating everybody else while dealing with all the stuff that's coming at them daily. So I do think it's different to opt out. It, it to me very, is very contextual. <laughs> like if I were judge and jury here, I would say, well, don't, you know, for the person who's not enduring the daily microaggressions, I might say, well, remember, you know, opting out is a privilege that is afforded to some. And then for those of us who are carrying tons of water and and have put all of our passion in, in addition to everything we do, for us to opt out is a radical self-care measure. So I I guess what I'm, I am kind of delineating, you know, there is a tension there and there's a difference of our criteria and, but I don't know, like we don't get, you and I don't get to be there in that moment and make that call. But I hope that um, whoever's listening to this sort of, you know, thinking about how do you how do you take care of yourself, but how do you hold yourself accountable for change? So if you're the person that's opting out because it's uncomfortable, um, but you're really not exhausted on a spiritual level from like, you know, having really had to tangle with this your whole life, then it's sort of like the risk conversation we had earlier. Like, like are you really out of bandwidth or do you just want to avoid the spikiness and the discomfort? So I do think this is different considering, you know, who's in that conversation. Um, and the, and the fatigue is real. And I worry about our community. And when I say our community, this is the practitioner community. We, you know, Mm -hmm. we are having the human experience as all the things we are at the same time as we're teaching and we're holding space and we're directing the strategy. And we're the ones being like tortured about the business case all day long too, you know, and not feeling like, Hey, Mm. don't I matter enough? Like, am I the business case? Is this enough? Like I had one, oh my gosh, I was with an executive team and somebody was just arguing with the, how irrelevant sexual identity and gender identity is to me. And I'm there like paid to have this, facilitate this conversation. And, and I'm like, I'm like, um, do I say, you know, out loud how invalidated I feel like as a human right now, like, you know, I do I use this as a learning moment, but, um, boy, is it hard for all of us 
to be the teacher, but also be the human in the equation and having to balance all those things. And yet feeling that the work has chosen us, feeling that there's nothing else that we would rather do in the world. So um, it's very intense. It's just very, it's an intense combination of things. And um, that's something I wish people knew and understood and and knew how to support our leaders that are really pushing this boulder uphill. Um, when we don't even, to your point, I'm not sure we even know how to support ourselves. I, I, I have a hard time answering self-care questions because it's like this, it's this magnet that pulls me forward. Like, it's just this, like, I must do this and all else be damned. But the all else is the personal care, the, the boundaries, the, you know, the, I'm not ready to have this conversation today. Especially if you do this for a living, you cannot opt out. You honestly can't do that. So how do Mm -hmm. we, you know, this gets to, this gets to managing and leading really, really differently in organizations. I think what you're tapping into is, is do we make space for anybody for any reason to say, this is, I'm uncomfortable. I don't have the resources today. Um, I'm going to take care of myself. And if that means I'm not finishing that project, if it means, right, um, I need some time. Leaders, I think, need to flex around this versus fight against it and push it and force it, which is what the answer has been. And that is what the white supremacy checklist would tell you to do, right? Just push right through. And I was raised that way. I mean, there was no room. There was no room for me to be messy, not show up, not make a good impression, not complete the task, not achieve, no room. So it's, it's this daily struggle for me even to be like, Hey, can I just be, can I just be human? Am I allowed to be that? And be the expert, by the way, Charlie, that's the other thing. When you write all the the books and the, you're, you're, well, you're supposed to have all the answers. Well, you're supposed to hold it together, right? It's the performance of what the, those who they, they consider an expert to behave as, right? You walk in, you have the command and control, you have the answers, you have this, you know, persona, but part of the learning is to show up in the messiness and have people not say, well, that's not professional, or she doesn't know what she's talking about because she was vulnerable. You know, I see some executives are starting to share about mental health challenges, right? And I'm like, that is the really brave, like that's, if we had more people open about that, I think that would go a long way towards where we need to be. But there's like so much hiding going on um, and so many untruths that are allowed to stand. Um, and then as a result, unfortunately, we think that nobody shares our story. And that's the tragedy of all this is, you know, let's let's not let anybody suffer alone when they're really not alone. You're really not alone. And for those leaders who are not talking about these challenges, it's it's insidious, but it actually leads to them resenting being in the conversation about other people's needs. So true. Yeah, because they're not they're not heard. They're not heard. And it's like my my like there is base it's not what's stated. So so much of what we talk about in this is just the absurdities that we integrate and and practice, but when we say them out loud, they don't make sense. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so the 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 absurdity the op, the operative absurdity is like since I my needs aren't taken care of and your needs like we just don't really take care of needs around here. Right. <laughs> that's not what we do. <laughs> that's not what we're about. That's not what we, that's not really, that's not really the game. The really, the game is you show up 
And, you know, it's a hardcore culture to use oh, the Twitter goodness, thing going right? on right now. And we just do the job. Oh, man, that's the a whole, whole four conversations. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's just what it is. And so if they're like, this is the game that I mm-hmm. have to play, but they don't ha- they <laughs> don't have to play that game. This is mm-hmm. bullshit. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then that's where we end up having to make the business case. It's like, well, yeah, we know that it's, you know, it's there's some moral stuff in there, but this will make your business better. Like, okay, well, that damn, right? Um, instead, we can be saying, like, really, how would we change the organization so that everyone can have space? Mm. What a beautiful right? question. And do their best and be and be their whole person, including, including you. you. Because, by the way, the way it's organized now, without you knowing it, it is actually toxic for you. Like it may be all, you know, yeah. but that doesn't make it right. Yeah. And when we really take seriously emotional contagion and we really take seriously that energy has to go mm. somewhere, where do you think that toxicity goes? Mm. Mm. Right. It doesn't just stay with you. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's that sort of scenario. So I'm curious, first, I got to say one thing. I'm sorry that happened to you oh, and during oh, that facilitation you. where that, that super sucks. Yeah, like mm, what, what, what did you do in that moment? <laughs> and I'm sure his colleagues were horrified, right? I, I love it when you teach a lot of groups like I do and you do, you see the group correct itself, which I love, which makes my job a lot easier. Like I, first thing I say to myself is allies are important. Like this is the moment when to me, it makes the case for the relay race, right? That I don't always have to solve everything. I don't always have to be the one, but I've got to pick my head up and say in the moment, I'm not alone and that others are ready to support. They may not know how, but I would imagine I was a long way away and they were in a room somewhere in Europe. So I would imagine (laughs) this person got some conversations. (laughs) Um, and I, and, 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 and that's where I know we're making progress, right? That, that um, not every problem is one for us to solve alone. And working smarter, not harder, to me in DNI means that we line up our supporters. That we that we remember this very key moment and reach out for help, ask for support, lean on others. Not kind of get again back to the white supremacy checklist individualism. <laughs> so this permeates. A lot of us in our warriorness, right? In our sort of, I'm a fighter. I'm going to tackle, right? I have to take care of the shit like that is happening. Um, so I was mindful of that. And, you know, in that moment, um, I think I probably struck a balance between saying you, you, re- you realize that what you're saying, your words, how they might land on someone that identifies as I do. And just... Just like ask it. It wasn't like, how dare you? It wasn't, I'm hanging up. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, it's, it's, it's gentle and loving, but firm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a reminder to come back to heart, to come back to kindness, come back to seeing a human. Um, and, you know, I might've, I might've sort of carried on. And then I think you go and you unpack it with other people who you can just vent with, right? You just, I, I think like you, you hold it together and then, and then you leave and you're like, ah, oh, I need to really like go and like scream a little bit and get angry and complain and just, you know, say, can you believe this happened? And, and that's where leaning on others too within community is super important just to, and for you to say like, I'm sorry that happened to you. Like, that's beautiful. It's exactly, that's, and if you'd been in that room, 
I think you would have said something, right? Because you know what you know, and you've done that work and you're aware, you've picked your head up and you've said, I don't identify as Jennifer, but like, that's not going to happen on my watch, not in the rooms that I'm a part of. And I know that you would do that. And I would do that with you. So, 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 but this means that we shoring up our allies, right? Thinking about this is why this work is so important because if we don't do it, we're alone again. And I don't want to be alone. I'm not going to survive alone. So this is why I kind of always come back to, um, can I strengthen people who are on the sidelines and help them step in? And in that moment, if they know something's wrong, they may not know what to do, but they may think about it. They may raise it either in the moment or afterwards, and they may learn a lot from that. And I, I think that's the best we can hope for. Um, and in the meantime, I, I try to be like bamboo, like bend, not break, and just be very resilient and very, um, again, gentle, but firm and strong and say, Ooh, this is a reminder also of where people are. It's just a reminder. And that's good for a teacher to know, because if we don't meet people where they're at, we, we can't be effective. So, um, good reminder and, um, you know, taking that in, but not letting it, not letting it destroy me, not letting, not, not over rotating towards things also too. I think, um, that's another kind of technique as a teacher you have to have is just, um, so trust in the group to correct itself, um, shore up allies and continue to invest in them. Let them know when they're being helpful, congratulate. And, and that's not the word, encourage someone and recognize someone when they step up because they, many times people do something naturally, don't even notice, didn't do it intentionally, but it was really helpful remark on it, tell them exactly what they did, encourage that. That's how we build more. Um, and then, um, and then I would say, think about bamboo, think about working with, think about the information you're getting, think about how it is, is happening for you, you know, as someone who, I don't know why I needed to be reminded that that is still a thing that's still happening. That's still on people's hearts and minds really good reminder so that I don't get too far ahead of my skis and too optimistic. <laughs> Sometimes like crashing me back to earth is good. And, um, and you know, it's sobering, but it's, um, it's necessary. Yeah. Well, knowing more context that it was for a European client, like I have different ways in which I understand that. Right. Oh, right. Uh, and so yeah. that's, a, that's a fourth <laughs> that's a conversation. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> so as we start wrapping up, I'm curious. So this is the second edition of how to be an inclusive leader. Um, what I'm going to use punches, even though it doesn't resonate, but it's, it makes sense. What punches did you pull or soften in second edition that you're like, Hmm, maybe I could have said it differently or more forcefully. I'm just sometimes in this work, you know, you're like, mm, there's this way I would have done it, but I decided yeah. not to. Oh, Wow, I don't think we pulled a lot in this one. I think I pulled some in the earlier edition. Okay, cool. I think that the this is why you do a second edition, I think. And if there's any authors listening to this, it's a wonderfully clarifying exercise to go through, an opportunity to to recraft something, right? And make it more hard hitting. So I think we I just wasn't I wasn't as deep in the work when I wrote the first one. Like that was five years ago. I'm like a very different human. <laughs> um, I'm I'm unafraid where I was maybe pulling the punches or more hesitant earlier. I think um, 
I have the wind at my back of change in a very different way than in 2018, 19, when I was writing the first edition. So I I feel I have permission to be more honest and take the gloves off. Um, And speaking to, you know, white readers more directly who are reading the book and really naming that and saying like, hey, I'm talking to you, (laughs) talking to me, talking to you. Um, We need to do more. Here's what more looks like. Sort of, uh, so I would say actually it was, it was a gloves off edition. Um, could I have gone even further? Maybe, but I still am very aware of where people are and what they're ready for and what they're not ready for. Even though we've gone through this huge reckoning and so much has, has turned upside down, people are still, I still am in so many rooms where it's very elementary. So I don't want to get so far ahead that the only people I'm talking to are the 3.0 people. Like I don't want to leave people behind. And so there's this balancing act of, um, you know, I don't, I, I, I want to have the biggest audience possible, but not for like sales and money. Cause God knows, you know, books are not lucrative, but, um, but to reach as many people as I can is more my goal. So, um, I had to balance the, the truth telling and the, um, ripping the bandaid off and the sort of insistence of the book with the, and you can do this. I know you can do this. I've seen people do it. It is not only doable, it's necessary, but it's this gift. It's the invitation to transformation that, um, gosh, I hope, I hope becomes a classic. I mean, I think whenever you write something, you hope you hope it really changes people's frame and um, you've written so much and, and done so much to shift people's frames too. And I know you, you probably agree. There's just nothing like getting that email that says like, thank you. And, and I've really have never looked at this the same way again. And that's my, that's my goal. So, but you know, talk to me, maybe I'll write even a harder hitting one in the future. You know, I could, I could really, really take the gloves off <laughs> if that's the way I go. But I also kind of, sometimes want to go to the softer side of this too. Part of me really wants to dive into the more personal, spiritual, emotional aspect of change and write about that. So I don't know where I'm going next. Well, I'm excited about wherever that is. Um, I think your book will change a lot of people and it is a great um, entry point into this conversation for folks that um, have not found their way in through other means. Um, yeah, and so I like that. I'm very happy with that. <laughs> so as the guest on today's show, you need, you get to leave our listeners with an invitation or a challenge, depending upon what most resonates with you. So based upon what we've talked about, what would you invite mm. or challenge our listeners to do? Mm. Maybe a challenge to get comfortable being uncomfortable, um, to learn to sit in the ambiguity, in the not knowing, and almost act as if and practice it as a new normal and status quo, um, because it will hold you in good stead for all of the ways that you will need to lead and show up in the future. I mean, DEI is a laboratory for human evolution. Um, it challenges us at the deepest level and, um, but it's exactly the medicine. It's exactly, you know, what we need right now. And so, um, but yeah, I think it's uh that is my challenge and it's a challenge I experience. I don't know about you. 
But sitting with that and practicing that, breathing through it, moving through it with love, with grace for ourselves and for others and not running away, but staying in it so that we can see what's on the other side is really an invitation as well. If I can kind of wrap that, (laughs) I wanted your invitation too. So I just grabbed it at the very end. (laughs) I appreciate that. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us today on the show. Thank you so much. All right, listener. So you heard it from Jennifer. How can you sit in the discomfort and uncertainty and tension in this conversation? And you may recall, as we talk about doing your best work in the world, you hear the same themes. Sometimes to do the work that matters most, we need to learn to sit in the tension and discomfort um, and uncertainty rather than make it go away. Until next time, stand tall and start finishing. You've got great ideas. Now it's time to turn them into a project. Try our new app, Momentum, to easily create a schedule and help you achieve what matters most. It's a productivity coach in your pocket. To learn more, go to hellomomentum.app slash pod. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that'll help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.